Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome to the DFD or Dairy Farming Discussions podcast. Here, we want to discuss all things dairy farming. This podcast is about getting information out that is going to help your dairy operations succeed. Our goal is to bring you timely information on beneficial topics. We plan to bring in some of the top names from the industry to share on the topics they have studied and more importantly, are passionate about sharing with you, the listeners. I hope everyone enjoys this week's episode and thanks for listening. Hey guys, Luke Mahalik here. Welcome back to the DFD podcast. Uh, we are in for another awesome episode this week. As always, we have Keith. Keith, do you want to say hello there? Yeah, hope everybody's uh, doing well out in Dairyland this week. Lots going on out there. I think up my way, there's been lots of second cut coming off this past week and uh, some dry hay and things sitting in the field this morning as well. So lots going on. Wheat starting to come off, I think, too. So busy time for farmers out in the field. So it's a good time to uh, listen to a podcast episode when you're out doing the field work. So today our guest is Chris Church, who I will let him give his background there so that I make sure we get it all correct there. So Chris, you want to just say hi and, and give us a little bit of your background and history in the dairy industry here. Certainly. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, I'm a veterinarian by background. I uh, did an Aggie degree in the mid-90s from Guelph and then went on to do my vet degree. Spent a bunch of time while I was doing that uh, working for the, the population medicine guys, so Ken Leslie and those fellas. Spent a lot of time working around research projects that I would travel all over the province for. And then I moved into uh, clinical vet practice in southwestern Ontario. And I worked for 15 years as a dairy vet, mostly um, herd health kind of things, but I was really interested in what, what made you as a farmer money, what were your bottlenecks, and then how could we attack those bottlenecks to, to make things better. Also got into IVF and embryo transfer work. And then five years ago, I got uh, attracted over to the industry side of things. So I now work for a feed additive uh, uh, pharmaceutical manufacturer for, for animal medicines. And for the first four years here, I would travel across Canada doing uh, fresh cow audits with, uh, in partnership with vets and nutritionists with the, the producer. So how'd you find it moving over from, uh, you know, being a partner in a practice to working uh, in the industry? It was tough to, to not see everybody on an ongoing basis. It was really great, though, to be able to get out and see different things across the country. You know, a cow is a cow is a cow, but how we farm and produce milk is very different in Newfoundland versus the Fraser Valley in BC. On that note there, like that, that would have been incredible, I'm sure, and still is. I'm sure you're still going to be doing some traveling uh, when COVID kind of comes to a bit of a pause here, I guess. Maybe just go over some highlights there. Like, I mean, I know we're going to get into this a little bit more, but what were some of the craziest things or coolest things you got to see maybe as far as the East Coast goes and then as far as the West Coast goes? So if we started at the East Coast, uh, visiting Newfoundland, it's really, really something. You know, farmers, of course, everywhere are eternal optimists. We all could find a place in the world that would be cheaper to buy our, our uh, produce from, but all of us intrinsically realize it's important to be able to try to have a hand in producing our own food. Out on the rock, as they call it. Yeah. There used to be a subsidy once upon a time to get manure out onto the land and there's not a lot of soil. So you take a, a, you know, a very thin layer and you add all kinds of manure to it and potassium is a huge issue. 
So they may be four or 5% potassium. So <laughs> milk fever is a tremendous issue. Yeah. And they have a lot of trouble growing small grains. So they've got to bring all of their, um, their supplements across, their straw all has to come across. And at the time I was there, there was a $250 per ton fee for getting a supplement across to the island. If you go all the way west, what were some interesting things out that way? Just out of curiosity, really. Sure. Well, and really and truly, the, the opposite coast is almost exactly opposite. So Fraser Valley in BC, for any of your listeners that are on Ontario, we sort of think of ourselves as being yeah, somewhat congested. You know, we've got lots of paved main roads, but still have dirt side roads. And we're close, close to cities. We're there with Chilliwack and Abbotsford. They're basically almost feel a little bit like you're still in the city, no matter where you go. You know, you'll see combines in the, the parking lot at Walmart that they're popping into <laughs> Tim Hortons. And, you know, so agriculture is very central to everyone's living. And the, the forage is very different. You know, they get a lot more rain. The, the weather starts earlier. So they may get five cuts, but a lot of it is still... Um, similar to what we'd see in some of our areas, like say um, Coketown, that's a little tight on size of fields. So when it comes to balancing a close-up diet, they're bringing grasses, haylages from 10 different fields together in wrapped bales, and they're having trouble keeping track of which has come from from which field and what that might contain. And, uh, you know, just a very different set of uh, logistics that they're they're battling. Do you want to just kind of highlight what kind of the projects where you were working on that took you that far east and that far west? And then we're going to start to talk about some of the findings there and how we can uh, actually help come up with some strategies to uh, overcome some of these obstacles. So our company had uh, Alanco in, in trying to support our product, decided to come out with a technical support team that could go out and do troubleshooting and value adds with our, um, our partners. And we deal both with vets and with nutritionists. It, it's always funny. So when I was just in vet practice, I always thought I got along great with my local nutritionists. And you know, those guys, now that I'm on uh, you know, one step away, tell me that, that we always got along. But it's always the bit of a joke that not all vets and nutritionists uh, get along very well. Right. So you know how that works. If, yep. and, and the old story that the, the vet's palpating and says, oh, this manure is thick, you should add some mineral, or the, the ovaries are small, you should add some mineral to the ration. And that's what you yeah. guys hear back. And it sure. maybe is not what was said, but it comes through the producer. And I going to say, it's usually lost in translation. So, <laughs> Well, and you usually think of a few things you'd like to say back through translation to the producer. Well, we never get the our producer, back, so but... we're always comfortable and collected. So. <laughs> but the, the great thing was, is we were able to come in kind of as the the outside facilitator. And uh, so our, our company hired a couple of professors away from some universities in the US and said, if we could take all the research that's available around transition and put it into one bucket and then bring that out to the farm and basically hold those, that list, for lack of a better term, hold that list up to the farm and in two or three hours say, you know, what are, are the biggest bottlenecks that are facing your farm with all the advisors present and then what are some low cost, easy solutions that, that we could present um, that you could implement tomorrow to try to make a change for your cow? Yeah. So like what were some of the, maybe the common themes that you would see? Yeah. So we did about 400 visits 
um, over a four-year period. And there were certain things that certainly always seemed to come to the top. There's probably six different things, but some of the biggest were around ration. And when we would first say that it was nutritionally related, of course, the feed advisors would kind of go, ooh. (laughs) But there's lots of things that go into nutrition. So things like um, bunk space, if you don't have enough room for everybody to eat at the same time, water availability. When I was in practice, I don't think I had ever bothered to pay attention to how much water space there was per cow. And just, I'll give you an anecdote. So one of the, the things that I, uh, that personally, for me, as somebody who used to have had to run around and do displacement surgeries, one of the biggest changes that I've seen in the last 20 years in, for, for dairy has been the, the low energy diet, controlled energy diet. And as we moved into that, um, trying to, and however it's done, you know, say you're going to put straw into your ration and you're going to keep the energy low. If we go to, to a buffet and there's a really nice juicy steak and a burnt baked potato, you're going to fill up on steak and not potato. Well, a lot of times in the 80s, it was really big for us to put a bale of hay out and a pile of corn silage and let them choose what they wanted. Right. And it was usually our worst hay. And what happened? Well, they ate all the corn silage or a couple of them ate all the corn silage and the subordinate ones got to eat just hay and nobody was balanced properly. So we really want them to eat shepherd's pie. So just the fact that we're now using our TMR mixer is step one. You know, we've got genetics that were, you know, our, our, our cow is not the same cow we had in the 80s and 90s. So trying to get that energy level right and then get her to eat it consistently. So when we first came out with this high straw diet, we all talked about it, but we didn't kind of go through the, the, the checks of, would the cow actually eat that stuff that you've mixed? Is it four inches long or is it, you know, half an inch? And so just that big bucket of nutrition, getting a really consistent chopped ration that they've got bunk space to eat it and then somewhere to drink. So I had a um, herd we worked with, they had about 60 cows in the dry pen and they had previously tried a dry uh, straw diet and it was a huge failure in their mind. Well, as we got doing some measuring, we get in the pens, we look at pen size, we look at water availability. They had one Richie bowl for, so your typical, um, they can drink on two sides, but that was all that was available for 60 animals. And so it's like, you know, eating peanuts and then at the bar or pretzels and then them saying, yeah, you can have one thimble full of beer is all you're going to get tonight. Yeah. <laughs> no so it was really, and it was really dirty. And, you know, there's no way your, their intakes were going to suck. So we, it was in the summer, we didn't have to worry about freezing. We suggested, well, why don't you go back on the Goldilocks diet, but just put in a great big, huge tub that you fill with a hose. And they tried that, their intakes went way up, you know, just something simple like that, that none of it, we're all so busy. You just don't take the time to, to think that through. So like in your professional opinion as a veterinarian, like what do you see as the effects or the importance of the body condition on these transition cows? That's one of the other buckets that really seems to rise to the top. And it, I didn't really grasp the importance of it until we were asked to come back and do a second round of audits on some producers. This is two years or three years after the first, they had already dealt with a lot of their bottlenecks. So, you know, built new barns, lots of space, pretty nice rations, 
but they were still seeing more ketosis in fresh cows than they hoped. Now, they were also measuring. So that's something that if you're actively measuring, you know, twice a week, you're going to know if your numbers go up or down. If you're not measuring, you don't really know. But they were measuring and they saw a difference. So as we started to go through step by step by step, we started noticing that cows were coming through with more condition on. Traditionally, if I were to ask somebody what a fat cow looks like, you know, you'd think of the old round flush cow that couldn't get pregnant and she's four and a half. A lot of the research says that once you get over three and a quarter, you hit three and a half, your risk of ketosis starts going up. You kind of know how it goes in most of our herds. Cows coming up to dry off and you've kind of got these two kinds of cows. You've got one that you can't dry off. She's pounding out the weight. She hasn't put any on her back. And those ones are a struggle because you just, you know, you can't get the pressure out of them. And then the other girls that have wound themselves down and have started to put weight on. Those are the ones that really seem to give us the problems because they come in a little fat. They come through the system like that. Like I know there's some work that uh, one of your colleagues, I think he presented on mobilizing body fat and just the issues with that. And so maybe if you could explain. So some of the, the newer research that has been done is, is by um, um, Jim Drakeley. And it, it's, he's also the guy that with Gordy Jones um, took the idea of a, of a low energy diet for um, pre-fresh cows and put the proof to it. So I actually did the research on it. And in thinking, he said, okay, if our cows are different than they were 30 or 40 years ago, what does that mean? Do we have to have, if we've bred for a different metabolism, does the way that their bodies react um, to this whole energy change? So uh, one of the keys that we all know is after calving, the cow cannot physically eat enough to produce the calories that she needs to produce as much milk as she does. So she's going to take some of the weight off her back. That's the way God intended that sort of situation to work. And within a certain um, window, it's perfectly healthy. It's perfectly normal. It's just that when we get too far out, we start to get, so there's a couple of reasons why we can get too far out. Either we don't feed well enough after calving. We're uh, feeding a, a diet that's not um, good enough or they can't eat enough of, for some reason um, that the ketones get beyond a certain level. And once you start getting beyond a certain level, then they start having negative effects. The other reason that this could be is the system is just not working well enough. And they find that cows that are overweight, they need to eat more calories or more intake in the dry period and in the fresh period to maintain their body. They will lose weight faster um, because they're just not able to keep up. And that's where the real problem becomes. So they they, Drakely did a study trying to figure some of this out and, and he was using pretty low numbers. Like he was looking at, you know, should a cow be three? Should she be two, seven, five? Should we be two and a half? And that's going to raise another issue, which I'll talk about in a minute. But they found that cows that are, are a little bit on the thinner side actually do better with transition. Now, the two things that are three things that we often say is, well, Counties, and, and if you look at the U.S. versus Canada, the U.S. has always been about half a score lower in recommendations than what Canada was. You know, our typical big Holstein cow was, you know, oh, geez, we'd really like to see around three and a half at dry off, is what a lot of us would say. Well, in the States, that would probably traditionally have been three. And part of it was, well, we think we need to support milk production and reproduction. Now, are there th are there, is there proof in that? The reproduction one, not so much. The milk production one, eh, a little bit. If you get too thin, if you get below two and a half, the cow will not rebreed on first breeding very well. 
And if you get below two and a half, you're going to have less. So yeah, you don't want her too thin. The really big bucket that we're going to have to deal with in Canada is with ProAction, we've decided that we want cows from a welfare standpoint to not be too thin. And so we say that we don't want to have too many cows in our herd under two and a half. The problem is there's no scientific evidence that says that a thin cow is an unhappy cow. That's just something we as people relate that, well, if I see someone who's uber thin, maybe they're nutritionally unsound and maybe that's an issue. We got to be careful with that one, but that regulation is what it is. So Drakeley actually has done some work around reproduction and transition. And he thinks that we should be aiming in the 275 to 3 for a fresh body score. And interestingly enough, the cows that were 275, they went, they went to follow them through on their, on their reproduction side. They had higher conception rates than the fatter cows did. And that really is something that none of us would have expected. When they're doing the fresh check or doing a fresh body condition score, how fresh are they? And that gets, that gets pretty, um, pretty vague. There's very few producers who, and, and rightly so. So if we go back 20 years ago, we used to body condition score a lot of herds at pred checks, heat checks, fresh checks. The problem with data is data in itself is useless if you never do anything with it. So we would have these lists that nobody would ever look at, or you would just never even put them in a spreadsheet to see, hey, cow one, two, three, did she drop half a body score or one body score? Nobody ever followed up. Right. So as an industry, we've kind of got to the point where most of the time we're eyeballing herds. Are they really thin? Are they losing a lot of weight? Are they not? There is something to be said for tracking how much of a score an individual cow drops. And that half, half body condition score sort of in the first two months is the goal. If you start getting into more than that, the research says you're going to get more problems. There's very few producers, vets, nutritionists that are actually out there collecting that. And if they do, it's sort of pen level. So, hey, these five cows in this pen, they were average this and the fresh, you know, dry average that, fresh average this, peak average that. It gives you some sense for it, but it's not maybe as accurate as following the individual animals. One of the big things that affects reproduction is transition, specifically ketosis. But if you've got cows that are coming in a bit chubby, say they're coming in chubby because you had trouble breeding them last year. Then they had long days dry. They gained weight. They came in fat. They got ketosis. Then they didn't breed back well, and it just self-perpetuates. So starting even with the... Uh, the low energy diet where we don't have cows getting fat during dry has at least started to help with that. Um, but now even just paying attention to it that, Hey, I am in, I love my repro, you know, I'm driven by repro and I want a good conception rate. Okay. My transition pen for two reasons. If I break cows in transition, I'm not going to have milk because I'm going to have animals that have to be culled without me wanting to get rid of them but also I'm going to have poor reproduction. So there's, there's, there's two reasons that we've sort of moved the bottleneck back from just reproduction to saying, um, let's back up around this transition space and fix that because then other spots in life are going to be easier. How many uh, farms would you say across the country are actually 
monitoring that and actually measuring, or maybe not so much measuring, but actually recording body condition scores at transition? In a usable form, there's probably only one in 20 producer that is measuring anything at transition. One of our biggest challenges in Canada is that we do not put enough um, effort into recording that data or, or, tr- or that information and then transforming it into something that's usable. Why do you think that is? Um, I've had lots of talks with my U.S. colleagues. And so if one in 20 are doing it well in Canada, they would tell me that six out of 10 are doing it well. Um, other people tell me, no, they're inflating their numbers quite a bit. Part of that could be herd size. They tend to be larger herds. They've got somebody who is um, given the the task of looking after the transition area. Uh, Some of it could be economics. The fact that if they're losing money in any given space, their margin of error is so much um, smaller than ours that it could really hurt them. Um, But I'm not sure. I, I think their advisors, both nutritionally and vet wise, have the same focus as we do in Canada. Um, but I've, I've tried to attack this a few different ways. I feel that until us as advisors show that we're, we're very interested to take numbers and do something with them, producers aren't going to see in value in writing one more thing down. I know I get that comment too sometimes is that, you know, they want to go off DHI or they want to, don't want to do dairy comp or things like that. And I would just wonder, are, is it because they don't want to record it or is it because the advisors around them are using that information to better manage what that producer's doing? And uh, I know I'm fortunate that I work with some pretty good producers that are doing a lot of this uh, recording stuff. Uh, so it's always good to, to look back, uh, you know, quarterly or, or monthly even and just see kind of take a snapshot of the farm and see where it's at. And there's a reason that you see these, some of these farms progressing is because they are doing these little things. There's a, an interesting um, case study. So the, the audit system I would go out to farms and use was basically us walking in blind, look to see if I can identify your bottlenecks and then your advisors can, uh, can see if we've agreed, if I've confirmed things that you know, they've felt for a long time. But there was actually supposed to be a part A and a part B to this system. There was another part of the system that if you had good records around transition, we could use those. We could put in all the prices for your preventions. We could put in all the, um, the amounts of different diseases you had. And we built financial models on how much each disease would cost you. And at the end of the day, we could tell you how much it costs for your farm to transition a cow. You know, so say if your producer's spending $50 in prevention or $100 in prevention, when you go through and you add up all the disease costs and all the inputs, you could be around $400 per cow. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, this one farm I worked with that had really good records, they were spending $80,000 a year around transition in inputs and in losses. We looked at some changes we could make. One of the changes was pen space. It costs, as we all know, it costs money to build an addition, but they decided to go ahead and do it. And we tracked it over time and looked at how did their, their diseases change? How did their milk production change? And we were able to save them $30,000 a year, which paid for the addition. Yeah. And then their life was also easier on top of, because they weren't going around treating animals. But you know, it's the old thing, even just on a, a really basic level, 
if you're unhappy with your milk production and you want to look at peak and you say to your, your nutritionist, I want you to do some investigating and, and, and fix this for me. If you're not writing things down around transition or you're not writing it down accurately, we worked with a cow in the U.S. that was milking uh, 5,000 cows and looked at how they recorded their diseases, uh, and it was metritis that we focused in on. If you had done a poor job of writing down, say you just decided not to, to look at metritis, you didn't write it down, it looked like all their fresh cows were producing 10,000 kilos you know, over the lactation. But if you were able to take out the, the, the healthy cows versus the mild and the severe metritises, you could start to see that a healthy cow on that farm made 14,000 kilos. But the other two groups really dropped. And it was nothing nutritionally or um, comfort-wise that needed to be changed. It was trying to reduce those two populations around metritis, which then you had to back up and try to figure out. But because they wrote it down, then they knew where to at least focus in rather than just throw it. You know, often we throw things at the wall and we see what sticks. If you had one area, I guess, to focus on around transition, what would a producer be able to start implementing today to help them tomorrow? Really easy. If they're on test, I would say start on a keto screen. If they're not on test or they're really keen to start blood testing or milk testing for ketosis and just starting to get a baseline with where you're at there, it's going to help you looking backwards because you can see what's been happening in the dry pen. You can actually treat that cow that's standing in front of you. And then it's also going to help you in your reproduction because there's some really good studies that say if you've got more than 12% ketosis in your fresh cows, you're going to have difficulty hitting over 40% first conception. And why is ketosis so related to repro like that? There's some theories around it, but if, if you think of when the, the, the oocyte is made, it, it's made about two months, so the egg, before the, it drops off the follicle on the ovary, it's made about two months in advance. So if we're breeding a cow at 70 days fresh, say, well, that, that egg was made when she was 10 days fresh. And if you are in a, a situation where you're really short on energy and you've got a lot of ketones, there's something about those that, that affect the viability of that egg when it goes on to, uh, to drop. Well, I guess tying in with ketosis a little bit too, like what would you say the rates are? Are we getting higher or lower uh, as we start working with the Formula One cars versus the, the old, uh, old station wagons? The old jalopies. <laughs> it's, it's pretty funny. Uh, again, it comes back to testing. So the testing that Guelph did in the 90s, they would follow their group of 30 herds and they had to go out and blood test them. They had ranges all over the map for those herds. Some of them had 10%, some of them had 80%. If we move up to 2015, when DHI was doing across the country milk screening, there's nothing that's changed in the last five years. Our numbers are almost exactly the same. So, you know, in the nineties, I think we are better than we were then, but I'm, I am interested that we haven't been able to, to move that needle more recently. So there are a couple provinces that may be higher or lower, but we generally are around 19 to 20% is the average in Canada. Are we better at identifying or finding ketosis now? Exactly. And the kind of ketosis that we're talking about, it, it, just to, to give people some background, 
we're almost talking about, and let me back up one step. Think back to the old kind of ketosis that was more common. Uh, you're in a tie stall, the cow stops eating, she stops, ha she has really dry manure, she stops milking. You say, ah, I think that cow has ketosis. Treat, you test her with a milk strip and it turns almost black, dark, dark, dark purple. Those cows, if you were to do a blood test that gives you a number, they're gonna be like a three or four or five. And what we want is we want cows to be um, between zero and 1.4. So we want them to be on, on, in that spot where they're working, but it's not making them sick. And if you can see the cow is sick, she's got clinical ketosis, visible ketosis. Now what we're trying to do is we're trying to find the invisible ketosis. So can you use some sort of cow side test or the milk test that happens to be every six weeks to give you some sense of what the invisible level is. Those ones, because you can't see it, it's really hard to know how much we used to have. And that's where the kind of test you use, using the DHI test is only gonna give you the score. It's not like you're probably gonna have a lot of luck maybe treating those cows. And the other thing, because it's every six weeks, you're gonna miss some of the cows. So I'm gonna try to jump into something that may um, drive some people nuts, but there's actually two number types you can talk about in stats. There's the one that says, I just want to know a snapshot. I'm going to walk out today to the pen and say, how many cows today have ketosis versus I want to know what every cow in the herd for the last year has experienced. One of them, you make sure every cow got tested. The other one, you just do at the odd time. Most of the time when we talk about this 20% average rate, that is the, hey, what's happening once in a while? So if you do that through DHI, they come every six weeks. The risk period for ketosis is the first two weeks. It means we've missed four weeks of cows that could have been in that bucket. So we've missed two-thirds of the positive cows. And the only way around that is every week you're going to test yourself. So the first number we call prevalence, the second one we call incidence, it's always higher. And that's where you got to be careful. Like say on Twitter, I, I heard a producer that said, I'm 50% ketosis. And of course, everybody chimed in and said, wow, that's way too high. I'm only 20%. In actual fact, he was testing twice a week. The other guys were testing every six weeks. It's actually, when you do the calculations, they have the same amount of ketosis. They're just talking kind of two different languages. So most of the time we're talking about, if you test once in a while, Every couple of weeks, you're doing some fresh cows. That's going to be the number that should that is typically going to come in around 20. And for reproduction, we'd like to see it under 10. Yeah, and I, I think that's one of the dangers that we still see. Even probably may even tie into that initial comment there about what we're seeing uh, in Canada. Is that oftentimes what do you hear guys talking about? They're all talking averages. You have very extreme high and low ends. Uh, that average really doesn't tell us any of the story of what's going on. It just tells us what, what those average cows are doing. Well, and this, this reminds me of another, you had mentioned, you know, what's different as we go across Canada. In Eastern Canada, Vlacta has uh, a uh, tool called the TCI, the Transition Cow Index. And it's a, a number that, that the University of Wisconsin um, came up with a number of years ago, but they, they're trying to come up with, so basically like pregnancy rate, it, you know, you go back 30 years ago and we didn't have a very good way to track our, our reproduction success. Where now pretty much everybody understands preg rate and kind of where they're at, where they'd like to be. Well, they tried to come up with the same thing for transition. Could they come up with some sort of score that you could use 
it's got some some real um, viability for the people who use it in the East Coast. And it'll be interesting to see if um, uh, Lactinet decides to bring that to the rest of Canada if, if they feel there's enough. Um, Do we want to just touch on maybe a few more of the, the big bottlenecks that you saw across moving across the country in these audits? And then I think, Keith, uh, you had some questions coming as well. So if we just want to touch on some of the other key points, and then we'll maybe get into some questions here as well. What are your thoughts on overcrowding dry cows, Chris? Uh, it was really quite interesting because we would actually get the tape measure out and say, okay, here's your pen. This, cow, this pen is big enough for 10 animals that um, ideally, and a lot of producers, you know how it is, they'd say, well, is that really right? Does the research really prove that? Does the cow really need that? And so I would have the discussion around, well, we need to prove it to ourselves a little bit. You know, why not put the number 10 in red crayon or paint up, up on the beam? And when you get a time where you've suddenly got a whole bunch of RPs, you know, instead of saying, ah, oh, the ration's off, look back and tell me, hey, what was the crowding like? And often you'll find, hmm, you know, there was 18 in the pen at that time. <laughs> and so it, it's, a, it's all about proving it to ourselves. But cattle, they're social beings but they do like their space, especially when it gets time to calving. So, you know, it, it all, it, it, we get into the discussion, is it one group? Is it two group? Is it uh, two group with a calving pen? And unfortunately, it's like going back to grade nine. Every time you'd get on the bus at the, you know, the beginning of the year, you went from being the low, the highest kid in the school to suddenly being the peon. And you really hoped your, your buddy saved you a seat and that you didn't have to go sit with the big kids. We take these, these cows that sort of have their hierarchies worked out and then we mix them all up and we move them around. Some places, you know, we're moving them. I, the worst I've ever seen is six times during dry period. We're maybe overcrowding them, but every time we move them, they stop eating for a couple days. Every time you overcrowd them, some, you know, they're a little more stressed. It's just, the thing that I like to say about a cow is if you look at the, the, the genetics, I do believe that the average cow is full of herds that could get 40 liters or maybe even 50 liters. We haven't figured out how to get out of the cow's way enough to let them do that. And some of the things we can do around dry period are give them lots of space, stop moving them around, and give them a nice stable ration. So when you look at square footage... Here's the question that I'm asked all the time from an advisory point of view. Are we including, like if they're in a straw pack, for instance, are we including the scrape alley in that? So that number is actually ProAction's recommendation, including the scrape alley. We would say the bare minimum you need on a pack per animal is 100 square feet. So you know how it goes. You get more pregnant this month than last month. On average, you, Luke, you were talking about averages. So if you build your barn for on average 100 square feet, you're going to be in trouble. You need to build 30% overage. So you really need to be 130 square feet for the average time to deal with the ebbs and flows. Usually you ask anybody that built a new dairy barn, what's the biggest thing you would have done different? I, more space. I would imagine 90% of the time it's dry cow space. So I have a maybe a hot button question for you, Chris. Can you overcrowd cows if you have enough head rail and water space? Yeah, so basically it's the hierarchy of where can we rob Peter to pay Paul? Yeah, exactly. And it becomes that it, it becomes a game of trade-offs. So a really interesting one is around fans. 
So right now, heat abatement's a big issue. There is excellent uh, research out there that shows that if you overheat a cow in the dry period, you're going to hurt that calf and you're going to hurt her udder. Mm-hmm. But what we used to do was we would all, if we only had a dollar to spend, you'd put your fans over the milk cows. Maybe you'd put them in, in the parlor. Very rarely you'd put them over a dry cow space. The experts would say, let's back up our thinking. Absolutely put them over the, the parlor because that's where we're packing them all in tight. Then put them around the transition space, fresh cows and close-ups. Then the milking string gets them last. It's going to be interesting around, I don't think we can say for sure that overcrowding at the bunk is going to be worse than overcrowding in, or, or. I would say limiting feed yes. space. Yes. Yes. So I, my gut would say that I would probably overcrowd the stalls before the, the head rail if I had my choice, but there's lots of good evidence that says cows make milk when they're laying down chewing their cud. And if they can't do that, then that becomes an issue. Well, I know one thing like especially on the water side i always say if you want to push maybe a little bit heavier on that calving pen like make sure you have enough feed bunk and make sure you have enough water because if she doesn't drink she's not going to eat so it really doesn't matter at the end of the day if you're uh, if you're not getting that enter or if you're not getting that protein and all the other vitamins and minerals and stuff into her you're probably going to fail around transition anyways so And then uh, I guess another question I had for like on my end, I'm pretty numbers oriented, oriented, you know, we're always looking at the financial impacts of these diseases. Do you have any like kind of rules of thumb, I guess, to say, you know, what does a case of ketosis cost you? What does a case of milk fever cost you? There's lots of data. been So it's actually surprising, right? There was no data up till a couple of years ago. That's getting stronger and stronger. So in Canadian terms, you're going to lose $400 for a case of ketosis. On milk fever, it's related back to usually clinical cases. The subclinical cases is, is what we're starting to talk to more of. And it's going there, there's more data needs to be collected. Uh, the one thing I was just going to ask is more of a blanket question for Chris. I know in your title there, you mentioned that your job description is uh, innovation and product development or business development lead. Kind of to sum this all up, like, is there some specific areas that you think we could still innovate and improve? Maybe just look at transition differently than maybe we are currently. I think specific to transition, you know, I think calcium is going to be the next one. There are innovations everywhere across the dairy that we can do. Um, You know, we're already seeing the move away from blanket dry cow treating. And I still think there's more we can do for that cow that's drying off. I think that there's better things we can do with vaccines. Some of the vaccines we have are very old technology, but they're very, very cost effective. As we start looking at the welfare of the animal, um, it's going to be really interesting to see if, if we can afford to take technology from the human space or even the dog and cat space where you know a, a pet may live for 10 years, could we use some of those kind of technologies in our cattle herds to create a healthier uh, lifestyle for a cow? And yeah, so with my, my other role, I get to spend some time meeting with startup companies and university researchers, anywhere from discussing some of these you know, very early projects that they're trying to figure out uh, the answer to a basic question all the way through to trying to, to see if there's something that we could someday bring and have cost effective on the farm. I guess just to wrap up here, I think Keith, yeah, you had a few questions come in uh, via text. I saw some of those as well. And then you had some 
online as well, I believe. So do you want to just kind of go through yeah. those for Chris? Well, we, we've talked a lot about the, uh, the one question, but I did have a one question. Like, what do you see out there as a trend or what do you see as kind of the ideal dry cow? Do you see it as a one group, uh, a two group, like a far off close up, or do you see maybe some kind of hybrid system out there? Yeah. And I think it depends on your goals. So way back when, when they were trying to look at that high straw diet, they originally were trying to make for a healthier cow. And I think we can all agree that we have less fresh cow problems on a one group, low energy diet. But one of the other things that we started to see was those herds seem to have a little bit less of a peak than they were expecting. So further research has started to look at the jump in energy levels from a really low far off diet to a fresh cow diet is pretty big jump. And traditionally we tried to limit huge changes in the rumen. So it, that sort of makes some scientific sense when we stand back and look at it. Some researchers, a couple different places have looked at, well, what if we had a close-up? And again, we don't want to have too many pen moves, but what if we have a close-up group that is a moderate energy? How would that fit in this discussion? And what they found was they had the same impact on transition health, but they also got higher peak milk. So if, if I were going to do it, that's what I would suggest is a, a, a low energy far off and a moderate energy close up. Now, producers always say the same things. How the heck do I mix all of these rations? And the crazy thing is, is it doesn't matter if you mix, if you're milking a thousand cows or 50 cows, your mixer is still not the right size for your dry cow barn. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that's a big problem that we see out there is they, they got these mixers designed to feed all the cows in a hurry and then the dry cows, uh, it's hard to mix a close up. But right. I, I do like the idea, like that moderate energy. I know I've been working with a few producers on the decat side of things and that's what we're doing. So we're, you know, we have a base far off ration and then we're adding in some, uh, a little more goodies with the anionic salts and things like that in the, in the final three weeks, because there just happens to be a pen move there where they're moving into another pen. So we have the, we have the flexibility to be able to do that. Well, and I was just going to say, going back to the, your mixer, a lot of people, if you're able, they make uh, one forage ration, they deliver it to the far off, and then they add the goodies for the close-ups in so that that's how they're trying to get around with trying to make two whole separate mixes. Yeah. And that's, and that's kind of essentially what we're doing um, with some of these DCAD diets is we're adding in right before we feed the uh, close-up cows getting the anionic salts into them so it's been working um we've seen some pretty good results with it and even with the new technology with some of these decad stuff like the the palatability issues that we had you know 10 years ago are don't seem to be there where with some of these products in the market now they're they're pretty palatable and the cows are eating them so the next question i got are what are some of the contributing factors to body condition loss and early lactation it so yeah great question one is where you're starting from So cows that are heavier lose weight faster because they just can't eat enough for their size to keep up. And that's really where a lot of our issues come with with the fresh cow is there is no such thing as a fresh cow that could eat enough to keep up with the production as we've already talked about. So you know you're going to lose some body condition. It's a natural thing. If we can do all we can to minimize that, so we've got a ration that's well-balanced, we've got feed availability, you know, at bunk space, and we've got comfortable cows, those are, are the other things that we've got to take care of. 
So I would back up and say the number one thing needs, if you've looked after everything else, you need to go and see where the cows are, are calving in at and then back up from there. And I even wonder, so this becomes an issue. Going back 20 years ago, we used to have a lot of herds that would have a two group lactating ration. So all the goodies in the, in the, for, the, for the high group and then a low group. And, and our goal was to save money. So we pulled a bunch of stuff out, but we used to see that cows would drop in milk when you move them. So when we were in times of needing milk, we just said, why don't we keep them on a good ration and keep the milk and maybe milk less cows. Now what we've got ourselves into is some of those cows that are not milking very well on those rations, those are the ones that get fat. Is there a spot, and this isn't to save money, but is there a spot to have a far off dry cow group that would be higher in protein and a little bit lower in energy so that the cow would not gain weight and maybe for some of the the repro issue cows, they would maybe even lose a little bit of weight. It's, I think that that's an area of research that we're going to have to figure out the answer to that question. I think that's uh comes back to our herd size here where that might not be feasible to have a group that's kind of that in between or where, you know, you can do a lot of things at a thousand cows that you can't do at yeah. even 250 cows, right? So. And the other problem we've got into with moving cows around a lot, it's become tougher and tougher to dry some cows off. So producers will have a quote unquote dry off pen that they're going to put the cow in. They might feed her less forage, different forage from the TMR. Um, they may be milker just once a day, but there's some sort of change. The problem is it's sort of a continuous flow. They're adding cows in, they're pulling cows out. They're not in there for seven days as a group together. So it's another constant change pen. And I worry that that's another spot that could give us some hiccups if we don't stand back and try to go to the same base rules of put them all in at the same day, leave them there for a week, say, then move them all out together. So at least it's not, it's one less turmoil to worry about. Yeah. And I actually really like the idea that I was talking to a producer about it the other day. And, you know, my biggest thing was you could just put them on dry cow feed there. You put on milk cow feed that doesn't have any, they pull the protein out of it is the biggest one and, and just slow those, uh, slow those cows down a little bit. So no, that's some great insight, Chris. So I guess the first question of this is what should a goal be for disease incidences? Like when we're talking about ketosis, RPs, milk fevers, uh, metritis, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we could go through each of those. Your vet will be able to give you a list, but you know, really quickly, your, your subclinical ketosis, one in 10, you want to be under that as your goal. Metritis, you're going to aim to be under 10%. Same with your RPs. DAs, we've always said 5%, but really and truly, you're going to aim to be under 1%. Those are the big bucket ones. What is the biggest downfall to not measuring disease incidences? To be successful, you need to have a goal. You know, if you're going to get out of bed in the morning, you know, what do I want to accomplish today? You may have other parts of the farm that you've got goals to improve, but eventually the bottleneck is going to have to come through the transition area. And if you don't have goals, then you're not measuring anything because you don't know what you want to do and therefore you can't improve. So you can't improve something unless you know where you're starting and know where you're going. And then one last hot button subject. What is the ideal length of a dry period? Somewhere, the research has said somewhere between 40 and 70 days. If you're under 40, you're risking leaving milk on the table. And if you're over 70, you risk leaving milk on the table and you risk health. I know that uh, 
you know, if a herd's averaging, you know, 60 days, you know, it can be a management thing. You know, if we need that extra little bit of milk, maybe we'll shorten that dry period up. Or, you know, if we don't need the milk, maybe we'll extend that dry period out a little bit just to kind of to manage on uh, to manage our uh, our quota. So, so if you've got the ability in whatever software system that's being used, this is one where I'd be I'd tell you to be careful of using an average number. Back to the outlier discussion. If you could use a scatter of where the cows are. So case in point, we had a herd that if they, they typed in what the average was, it was 58 days dry, but they were seeing lots of ketosis. And that's one of the reasons we were there. And when we got digging into it, the bigger group of cows was around 40, 38 days dry. And they had a big pocket low and they had a big pocket really high that averaged out to 58 days, but there was really no cows in the middle. And there was lots of pen changes. So you figure a cow that's dry for 40 days that goes through four pen changes, it's less than ideal. Or a cow that's dry for 100 days, less than ideal. So just even the way you're calculating it, just make sure you've got the whole picture that if you could even look at, hey, what proportion of my herd is between 40 to 70 and see what's low and what's high. And then, you know, you can say, okay, some of those low ones, maybe they're abortions, or maybe I chose to try them off short or vice versa. Um, but then at least it gives you a, a clearer picture of, of what you're trying to answer. Uh, again, to any of the listeners out there, if you guys do have uh, any questions, feel free to message us through Twitter. If you have our uh, direct contact, feel free to send us a text or leave us a voice message. Uh, we'd be happy to get that because I think those are going to be the most beneficial to you, the listeners, the questions that you guys have directly. So. Uh, with that, again, thank you so much, Chris, for your time. We appreciate that. Lots of really interesting information that we can take from today. And Keith, as always, thank you so much for your input. Yeah, thanks, Chris. I, uh, we've always had some pretty good discussions over the years, so it's good to, to get into maybe a, a little different medium like this to kind of share that with some other producers out there. And I just wanted to thank the producers that are listening. I know we're getting a little bit more of a following. We really appreciate it. So. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in this week. We really are trying to keep this podcast product and ad free. However, if you have any questions about what you've been hearing, we strongly recommend reaching out to your nearest SureGain dealership. We have reps across Ontario, Canada, and the USA that would love to come to your farm and offer solutions to those problems that have been keeping you from achieving your goals. Please feel free to share this podcast with anyone that you think might benefit from this information or on your social media platform of choice. I also encourage you to tune into Keith Schweitzer's YouTube channel. We'll be releasing podcast episodes every other Thursday, and Keith will be releasing YouTube videos on the opposite weeks. We appreciate your support and I look forward to sharing with you real soon.